what are we doing on this planet? That's the most important thing. It still is for me. You know, I get confused when I look around at the world and I see everybody's running around. And, you know, as Bob Dylan said, he not busy being born is busy dying. And yet nobody's trying to figure out what's the cause of death and what happens when you die. I mean, that to me is the only thing really that's of any importance. The rest is all secondary. Our physical being is really on a very, very subtle level. It's just like the sap in a tree runs throughout all the parts of the tree. Now, it's like that. Our bodies are manifesting into physical bodies, but the cause of the sap is pure consciousness, pure awareness, and that is perfect and perfect knowledge. But we have to tap into that to understand it. I'm Richard Buskin. I'm Eric Taros. The Beatles. Naked. Try one of the Beatles tunes. You want to try something? A Bob song, a Carl Perkins song. I'll take a Rick Astley song, George. I'll take. <laughs> I'll take a Spice Girls medley, George. <laughs> Sunrise doesn't last all morning, and a cloudburst doesn't last all day. Seems my love is up and has left you with no warning. But it's not always gonna be this way. All things first pass. All things must pass away. And a sunset doesn't last all evening And a mind can blow those clouds away And after all this my love is up and must be leaving But it's not always gonna be this way all things must pass All things must pass away All together now All things must pass And all the life streams can last so I must be on my way Oh, I'm facing another day And a darkness only Says at night time And in the morning it will fade away The daylight is good 
And arriving at the right time And it's not always gonna be this way All things must pass All things must pass away All things must pass All things must pass away So that was from July the 24th, 1997 on VH1 when George was with Ravi Shankar to discuss Ravi's new studio album, Chance of India. Are you familiar with that performance? Oh, yes. Kind of interesting, the timing of that, because that's right around the time George is first diagnosed with uh, cancer. Yeah, he was diagnosed with throat cancer, I think, shortly afterwards and was treated with radiotherapy. And at the time, it was thought to be successful, because I remember in about June of 98, he did some newspaper interviews and said that he was lucky that they'd caught it in time and he was going to make a full recovery. So that's how it looked for a time. And is that the time he said, I seem to remember him saying publicly, well, but that's it for live shows, because he was like, you know, I can't go 12 rounds on a stage anymore, something to that effect. He made like a fight analogy metaphor yeah well it's kind of interesting isn't it because he really didn't do a whole lot musically in the 90s you know after the traveling wilburys and then the tour of japan that short tour of japan which you went to one of the concerts yes i went to one of the tokyo shows right and then i attended his very last concert at the royal albert hall in 92 the natural law party concert yeah you got to see gary moore (laughs) uh, instead of Uh, Eric Clapton, even though it was Clapton's band, something was going on at that. I noticed when on stage as well when I saw them. Really? Yeah, you just, you got a vibe. It was really interesting, that show, for a number of reasons. There were parts of the show where George looked like he was having a great time and parts of the show where he just looked like he just didn't want to be there or he almost looked frightened in places. But there there Mm. was definitely not the camaraderie between he and Clapton that I was expecting. Well, I remember doing an interview with Clapton's manager, Roger Forrester, sometime in the early 90s after that tour. And he told me the story about how one night, I don't know if they'd had too much to drink, but George got into it with Eric saying that people were coming to the show more to see him than to see Clapton. Well, you know what? And actually, I'll have to defend him there. In Japan, you know, because I was taping all of the stuff on TV. I was there for, you know, a couple of weeks, I think. And it really was all about him. I mean, all the coverage was, and he had to give this press conference there and all this stuff. So I could see how he would have thought that. Yeah, and it may well be true, but, and obviously we don't know the context of this sort of small row between him and Clapton, but uh, what Forrester told me was that he finally laid into George and said to him, you know, you're out of line here because it's Eric, your mate, who got you to do this tour and he's supporting you on this. That's true. And this is really unfair. And apparently George just listened, didn't say a thing. 
and then ended with the punchline, you don't talk to an ex-Beatle like that. Well, he used it when it <laughs> was a typical George, right? When it came to his yeah. advantage, he'd haul that... The be- he'd play the Beatle card. And who wouldn't? Well, he's playing the Beatle card, but it's also sarcastic, right? It's not completely straight. You n- never know quite how to take that. Isn't that a lot of George's work anyway? You know, it's that strange mix of grumpiness and humor. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so we then go through the anthology years. And of course, anthology, which he really didn't want to do much publicity for. And... Then we find ourselves in 97 and him doing this VH1 appearance. And we didn't know it at the time. I saw it at the time. And of course, we had no clue that that would be his very final TV performance as such. I remember thinking uh, he had looked like he had aged a lot. Oh, yeah. I saw him in a Peter Sellers documentary uh, from the mid 90s. And he's got his hair pulled back in a ponytail. But it looks really greasy, his hair. He looks like he's kind of... I remember at the time saying he looked like he crawled out from behind some trash can. Oh, he was probably out in the garden. I, I, it's, it's funny because he did look you know, pretty young at the tail end of 91. And then you see him five, six years later and you go, you know, he really must have been ill or something um, for a long time before he finally did something about it. Well, he did say at some point in the 90s, I read an interview with him where he said that, you know, the smoking is bad, that he's been smoking most of his life, and he knows that if he doesn't give it up, it's going to catch up with him. Well, theoretically, that's what the tour of Japan was part partially to do, was to help him give up smoking. He said that at the time. Really? Yeah, he said that in Japan. I think it's on one of the interview tapes I have. They were like, well, why are you doing this here? And well, I, wanted, I thought it was a good way to give up smoking. Now, maybe he was kidding. Well, yeah, I don't know how touring would help him give up smoking. Because certainly Clapton was smoking like a smokestack right. on that tour. Yeah. So he, he's, I don't think he's taken the cure. Maybe not. I don't know. Well, in January of 98, he actually attended Cole Perkins' funeral in Jackson, Tennessee, and performed a brief version of Perkins' Your True Love. George, I don't want to put you on the spot or anything. Is there anything you want to, you want to request? Do you want to come up here and be with us just for this? I think Carl would want that. Yeah, he would love it. I'm that. not... Garth is here. Is Garth, did Brother Garth step in? Come on, Garth. You got to sing for your supper, son. Well, I think uh, somebody out there must know this. It's from Cole's first album. Uh, and you all sing the answer voices, right? So, it's been a long time. <laughs> Well, I true love, 
Yeah, obviously he had recovered enough for stuff like that. He he does, and didn't there was that court case in '98 as well? That um... yeah, that was in May of '98 at London's High Court, and it was actually a successful bid to gain control of the Hamburg tapes, the Star Club recording. Yeah, so obviously he had felt better, didn't feel compelled, I guess, to do anything more than hang out in his garden. Right, and during that time he attended. Linda's memorial service. We saw him there. And he also did quite a bit of promotion, actually, for the reissue of Yellow Submarine. Yeah, that he seemed to be... This is pretty psychedelic if you're a little kid or something. He had some interesting sound bites on that. Once mm. again, I'm sure after Anthology, where that was kind of a let's fill the bank accounts project in some ways... I'm sure the re-release of Yellow Submarine was a similar thing. Obviously, Anthology done so well. And, uh, you know, why not? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? George's musical output, as I said, during this decade was minimal, to say the least. He had also that live album, obviously, from Japan. Uh, But it's interesting that his credentials as such were really good at this point because between the Cloud Nine album and the Wilburys, He'd had significant success, you know, and actually, in many ways, was outshining his colleagues. Oh, there's no, I think there's very little question. He became relevant again. Kind of, McCartney was fond of, or people around McCartney were very fond of pointing out during the height of the Wings popularity in the mid-70s that there were fans of Wings who had no idea he was a Beatle, which may or may not, I mean, at this point, of course, how could they not know? But I suppose in the 70s, maybe not. I'm sure there were fans of the Wilburys that really, oh, the Beatles, yeah, I remember them, you know, but they weren't rushing to buy this stuff because it was George of the Beatles, you know, with Dylan and and the pals, I think because it was such great music. And Cloud Nine was v- kind of Wilbury-ish anyway, so it was almost mm. like there was three Wilbury albums. He, he kind of had the most legitimate career um, of them. They really, I don't think it owed anything to the Beatles, the Wilburys and Cloud Nine. Well, for me, George's post-Beatles work in the final analysis had most of the Beatlish music, you know. To me, he stuck more to his Beatle roots when he wasn't doing the Indian material, which he didn't do a whole lot of. But he stuck more to his Beatle roots than I think any of the others did. And it really brought home to me how much he contributed to the Beatles sound. I agree with that. And I also think that his use of Beatle devices was that he was the most comfortable with it. I think he did have command of it, like he could make anything sound like the Beatles if he chose to. You know, When We Was Fab, for example, is so effortless. When you listen to 
McCartney's attempt around the same time returned to Pepperland, it just it just sounds awful. <laughs> Sorry. When you say his Beatle devices, what do you mean? The sonic choices he would make and instrumentation choices and chord progression choices all, it seems, as I say, effortless. When you listen to something like uh, When We Was Fab or on his final album, Rising Sun, you know, he could just like do it like a light switch, which I'm not so sure Paul could do that anymore. I think Paul got weighed down by the 80s technology and all those dreadful drum sounds on those albums in the 80s and stuff. And I don't think he could easily go back the way George could and just sound like that. Nor could John, I think. I, I think mm. John's even, you know, people like to point at woman. That doesn't really sound like Beatle. It sounds like jo- Beatle John, but, you know, it's a little too syrupy and the backing vocals were a little too syrupy. And I, I don't think, you know, one of the things I loved about John at the end of his career is, to me, he sounded like himself and a guy but I, I really heard a lot of New York say in Walls and Bridges which is my favorite album and very mm. little Beatles but George could just like ah, okay watch turn it on turn it off well yeah absolutely you know tracks like Cheer Down very Beatle-ish and also when he produced others you know when he produced Badfinger or Splinter his Beatle handprints are all over those productions. Yeah, some, some. Splinter, I don't hear it so much, but definitely bad. Really? Yeah. Costa Fine Town? I guess. I, yeah, it's, I was, I never warmed up to them. <laughs> I guess no. I may have, I know you've played it for me before. I was like, eh, it's okay. Oh, really? No, I loved it. I mean, to be fair, most likely not many people warmed up to them, judging by the chart success or lack thereof. Yeah. So, it seemed that he was doing okay, you know, recovering from cancer. And then on the 30th of December, 99, disaster struck. At 3.30 a.m. this morning, police were called to Friars Park, the home of George Harrison. Uh, George and his wife, Olivia, had both been injured in an incident. They were taken to Royal Berkshire Hospital, where they're currently receiving treatment, and their condition is described as stable. A 33-year-old man from Liverpool has been arrested on suspicion of attempted murder, He has been treated at John Radcliffe Hospital for injuries he received, and he is now uh, at St. Aldate's Police Station in Oxford, where he'll be questioned later. Mrs. Harrison suffered some superficial injury, and while she's a little bit of pain and discomfort, she's been all right, and she she was not admitted. However, she's been by the bedside of Mr. Harrison. Mr. Harrison also suffered some superficial injury, and there was a stab wound to his chest. Now, that was treated conventionally, by putting a tres- chest drain in, um, and he's stable in a hospital bed. He's been getting much better, and he's comfortable. Generally, they're very happy, and as I said a moment ago, uh, concerned to let you know and the world know that they are um, recovering well and comfortable. They're keen now to try and get some sleep and some privacy. Um, I've got a quote from Mr. Harrison. And he said that um, the intruder was certainly wasn't intent on uh, a burglary, and he certainly wasn't intent on an audition for the Travelling Wilburys. I woke up. I just heard smashing of glass. I jumped up. I woke up George. It was about must have been about 4:30 in the morning. And I said, "Somebody's smashed a window." And he said, "How do you know?" I said, "I heard it." So he jumped up. And I ran to the door and I locked the door. And he said, why are you locking the door? I said, why? Because I'm afraid. That's why I'm locking the door. He said, no, no, no. I'm going out there. 
And so he ran downstairs, um, which he really didn't have to do, but he felt he had to do because my mother was upstairs and uh, he didn't want, you know, he didn't know where she was okay. We had a statue of St. Michael and the wing from the statue of St. Michael was made of stone, had been thrown through the window. And George was on one side and I was on the other and we looked down and this maniac just ran in like a, like a Beelzebub with a stick from St. Michael in one hand, you know, uh, the, the, you know, he, he slays the dragon with, uh, with his spear. He had that in one hand and I didn't see what he had in the other, but. Anyway, George started chanting really loud at him. And this guy was, was saying, you know, get down here, get down here. Um, you know, what do you want? He said, you know what I want. It was just horrible. It was just like this voice from the bowels of hell. And, uh, and then he just ran up the, tore up the stairs. He was in a florid, psychotic state, and he was tall and young. And they'd come closer to where the room was, and this man was on top of George, um, uh, trying to kill him, just laying on him in just, I think, the worst way um, to have some, you know, physical contact with some horrible person. Anyway, I just ran back in the room, and uh, I don't know, something just took over and I grabbed a um, poker. My dad was a big baseball fan and he used to always say, follow through. That's all I could think of was you're not, don't throw like a girl, follow through. I mean, it got worse, it just got worse because I hit the guy several times, you know, I could see the blood spreading down his blonde hair and then he got up, you know, he got up and he chased me and had me around the neck and then George got up and jumped on his back and poor George, he said, you know, God, just when he got off of me, I was thinking, oh, good. Then I had to get up and fight him again. And he'd already been stabbed. Uh, but we all fell into a big pile, and I managed to get out from underneath, and George pinned him down. And George said to me, I've got the knife. And I thought, what knife? You know, I didn't know. I, I thought he was just kidding. I thought he was just trying to fake the guy out, saying, I've got, I've got the knife. It's like, I, I hadn't seen that. Afterwards, we were... We were um, taken to a good old National Health Hospital with, the, with these rickety wheelchairs at four in the morning, and it was like freezing. It was so cold. I was just shaking. I didn't realize I was in shock, but, you know, they were pushing us down, and we were looking at each other, and we got us in these, in these beds, and they put the curtain around us, and he had a collapsed lung. He had things in and out the other side, in and outside of his leg. Um, you know, I had my head open and, you know. Um, but just looking into each other's eyes, just our eyes must have been like, I said, what the hell was that? He said, I don't know. It's like I never tried to kill anybody before. And I said, no, either did I. Obviously, we talked about it a lot. And the next day, George said, you know, I was lying there and I was thinking, I can't believe it after everything that's happened to me. I'm going to be murdered. I'm being murdered in my own home. And since I'm being murdered and I'm going to die, I better start uh, letting go of this life 
and I better start doing what I've been practicing to do my whole life so that I can leave my body the way I want to. I was so defiant and so determined. Nothing was going to stop him from leaving his body and, and having leaping as high as he could go. I had experience which speeds up the whole idea of, um, you know, if you have something happen to you physically, then, you know, people can go in hospital or have a, you know, something wrong with them and, um, you know, have a shock or something like that. And then you think, wow, yeah, I could uh, be dying now. Now, if I was dying now, what would I think? What would I miss? Would I, if I had to leave my body, you know, in an hour's time, what is it that I would miss? And I think, well, I've got a son who needs a father, so I have to stick around for him as long as I can. But um, other than that, I can't think of much reason to be here. He was very, very badly attacked, and by the time he died, he didn't even have a single scar on him. I mean, he was like a, he was like a yogi. He moved on from that physically and mentally and didn't let it affect him. But it definitely took years off his life, you know? So if you're trying to fight cancer and then you're trying to stay alive for something like that, you know, it's got to, it's got to take it out of you, you know? Unbelievable, you know, you'd have thought that there was amazing security around Friar Parks, especially in the wake of John's death. And yet, a guy managed to get in. Mad Mick. Right, he was a paranoid schizophrenic. Yeah, I mean, what a bizarre thing to have happen. You would have thought the security was better, but there's a thing about schizophrenia or bipolar disorder in the extreme cases where there's almost like superhuman feats that happen. I when my cousin was going through that horror. Um, I remember he was a very slight gentleman, and uh, yet it took five New York City police officers to hold him down when he'd get really manic. So you don't have no idea. I mean, Mad Mick could have you know, slithered like a snake over the wall or something with some sort of superhuman power. It's, it's a very strange disease, and it's obviously... Uh, I remember at the time my father-in-law, who's a general surgeon and, and treated many cancer patients... He said to me at the time of that, he goes, you watch George's cancers coming back. And he was right. Wow. Because he, he said, you know, that's so typical of uh, you recover from cancer, you're, you're past it a couple of years, and then some sort of trauma happens. In one case, he was telling me about it was a, a car accident that uh, triggered the cancer back for one of his patients and killed, killed the patient. Isn't it amazing? One beetle was shot to death in America and another one was very nearly stabbed to death in his own home back in the UK. But died in America. Yeah, which we'll get to. Abram, by the way, who said he was possessed by George and was on a mission from God to kill him. I'm not quite sure how that jives. He was later acquitted of attempted murder on the grounds of insanity. He was treated in a secure hospital. And now hear this, released in 2002. So year after George died, he was free. Yeah. In the song Looking For My Life, which would end up on the Brainwashed album, there are allusions to this. That In the lyrics, he says, I never knew that life was loaded. I'd only hung around birds and bees. I never knew that things exploded. I only found it out when I was down upon my knees. Looking for my life 
so stuck that I can't get to you. probably his most raw reflection and leaves nothing to the imagination in a lot of ways. Though that one song, Looking for My Life, when I first heard the line about the birds and the bees, I'm thinking birds as women and the bees as the other Beatles. Mm, Which he hung around the birds and the bees. Good, very very ingenious. No, I'm serious. I really did think that. I was like, oh, that's a nice little turn of phrase there because I was seeing it as, yeah, it was just all about, you know, having a good time until, I, you know, until my life was nearly taken. Well, George's statement about Mad Mick, he said he wasn't a burglar and he certainly wasn't auditioning for the traveling Wilburys. Adi Shankara, an Indian historical, spiritual and groovy type person, once said, life is fragile like a raindrop on a lotus leaf and you'd better believe it. Well, his humor was still there intact. I think George used humor the way a lot of great comedians do, which is to mask pain or to alleviate pain. Because mm. I seem to remember he made some other jokes around that time about when he was stabbed. But that that idea of, you know, it's interesting that he said, you know, he wasn't uh, he wasn't auditioning for the Wilburys as opposed to he wasn't trying to be a Beatle. So right. he considered himself a Wilbury at that point in his life. And a gardener, right? In Who's Who, I think he listed himself primarily as a gardener. He'd garden at nighttime. He'd garden until you know, until at midnight, and he'd be out there squinting because he could see at midnight, you know, he could see he could see the kind of moonlight and you could see the shadows. And that was his way of not seeing any of the weeds and imperfections 
that were, uh, you know, that would plague him during the day. So he'd be able to imagine what it was going to look like when it was done. He said it several times. He said, you know, by the end of my father's life, he just wanted to be in the garden. He didn't like cell phones and drum machines and traffic jams and pollution. And he'd just had enough and retreated into his little mm. sanctuary, which it always bothered me that if you have to get stabbed, why couldn't it have been somewhere but that house? I know. Uh, it is, it's just incredible, as I said. If people haven't been there or seen it, it's like a fortress. I mean, it's this castle way back in the grounds. You know, you have to walk a fair distance from the entrance gates to get there. And you have to go past a guest house as well, where I believe his bro George's brother Harry lived. Yeah, he was the head so gardener. So it's just stupendous that this guy was able to basically vault the wall or whatever and get in. Uh, Olivia's really been through a lot. You know, when I think about it, what a horror. And also, as she, you know, copped to in the documentary, George's infidelity. He was really a free person, and he did not like to be bound by rules. But he did like women, and he did, um, he was, women did like him, and he was, uh, whether, if, if, if he just said a couple words to a woman, Honestly, he had a profound effect on on people. So that was always something that was, uh, uh, you know, and I'm not the only one who's had to deal with this, you know, person who's well-loved. So that was always a challenge. George had two sides to his character. I mean, you know, I'm his mate, so I, I can't tell too much. But he was a guy, you know, and I, uh, you know what, what I'm talking about. He was like, he was a, a red-blooded, man, you know, so he, he would like, you know, the things guys like. Sometimes people say, you know, what was the, uh, what's the secret of a long marriage? It's like, you don't get divorced. <laughs> and, and I think, you know, you go through challenges in your marriage and I, here's what I found. First time we had a big hiccup in the road, I, I, I you know, you go through things, you go, wow. There is a reward at the other end of it. There's this incredible reward. You love each other more. 2000, George did that remixed version of the All Things Must Pass album. Didn't get rid of all the echo, because I think a lot of it was at source, but there were five bonus tracks on there, one of which was a remix and sort of partial re-recording of My Sweet Lord with Sam Brown doing backing vocals. Uh, George redoing his vocal horribly yeah. as far as yeah, i'm concerned it was pretty bad. and also revising some of the slide work apparently he wanted to make it a bit more melodic get it further away from he's so fine and show his original intent and sort of dress up the slide work but to me it was really a case of why you know why bother that the original was pretty much unsurpassable and he was on a hiding to nothing trying that but not that he would have cared
little bit like Lenin, perhaps. You know, John famously had that conversation with George Martin saying if he had given the chance, he would have re-recorded every single Beatles song. So maybe he felt mm. he could only hear the glaring errors or something like that or, you know, something bothered him about it that he would... Or maybe it was just nostalgia. I mean, he had that he had that recording studio sitting there and that really was George's publicly his greatest hit, I suppose, that album. I mean, he was the first ex-Beatle to go to number one. I'm sure that was incredibly gratifying to kind of instantly be seen as not only the spiritual Beatle, but wow, he's like so commercially successful. Look at this, a three-album set. Everybody was kind of struggling to catch up. And again, ironic, right? Because George was never the one to be chasing the next hit. Um, you know, some of his colleagues were, he wasn't, and yet he still had that success just based on his own musical credibility. And he had real street cred. So that must have been so gratifying for him. So maybe he's revisiting that in, in 2000, though it was pretty alarming. I'm sure you felt the same way. It looked like George was saying goodbye. I mean, it, you know, if you saw any of the promotional things that had the sort of Terry Gilliam uh, animation style where George is dying and going up to heaven and stuff. It doesn't, doesn't right. leave a whole lot to the imagination that George yeah. figures something's, you know, he's, he's rounding third. Now, it was also around this time that George had formed a friendship with Guy or Guy Laliberte, the founder of Cirque du Soleil, and got into discussions about possibly a Beatles-related show. Yeah, that was interesting. I wonder what the connection was. I never think of George as having much of a connection to Quebec. Maybe they were both gardeners. I don't know. It was certainly a bit of a surprise at first, because anybody who had seen Cirque du Soleil's previous shows, uh, the music was a little more in the background. I mean, it was always, they always sold CDs of it and stuff there, but it was more like spacey and new age type stuff that I would think George wouldn't have liked at all. And the performances themselves, obviously they pioneered the idea of an animal-less circus, but it was kind of like seeing an, uh, something from Star Trek, you know, like Captain Kirk and Spock would go out to see the Romulan circus. It would probably look a little bit like Cirque du Soleil. Right. For George to have accepted the offer, and I, I would imagine the offer came to him. I, do you think he actually went to uh, Guy? Well, yeah, that's interesting. I, I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't rule out that George could have come up with the idea, but one wouldn't think of him thinking up Beatle-related ideas. Yeah. I wonder if he just liked the idea or liked the the way this guy thought things out. But, I mean, very forward-thinking, okay? And it turned out to be a great idea, tragically, not one that he lived to see you know, actually realized, but it was a fantastic sort of notion there that, you know, to take Beatles music and build it around this, these spectacular visuals. Obviously, George got it. Oh, he did. And also, it's a great torch passing event, because that's really, to me, where Giles Martin shines, is working on that particular project, where uh, creating whole new uh, oral soundscapes out of old Beatles recordings and mashing up certain songs into others. Obviously, the the Within You, Without You, uh, Tomorrow Never Knows springs to mind. I thought the whole project was fantastic on all levels. It's a great 5.1 listen, by the way. I love that album. I mean, that is one of the post-Beatles, Beatles albums, if you like, that I do play regularly. Yeah, highly underrated, I think. It's a sort of... I know that people... Uh, love the show and should love the show. And the show's going strong. What, 13 years now? It's been 
it's been tweaked yeah. recently. Once again, George had excellent taste, I think. And that was great forward thinking, as you said. Now, it was in May of 2001 that I think we all learned that the cancer had come back, that he'd actually undergone an operation to remove some cancer from one of his lungs. And then in July, there was the report that he was being treated for a brain tumour at a clinic in Switzerland. And it was at that point, I think, that most of us saw the writing on the wall because it had metastasized. I really think when that uh, that remix or the, the, the re-release, the 30th anniversary edition of All Things Must Pass, I, I said, he's, he's going to die. You know, there's obviously he, mm. he thinks he's going to die. And so it was kind of like waiting for the bad news. I wasn't surprised. It was, yeah. And I actually, at that point, got into playing a lot of George's music, uh, listening in the car and reappraising it and actually developing a much greater appreciation. It's typical, right? When you're about to lose someone or you just lost them, that's when you start appreciating them. But listening again, I began to realize, well, he actually had a really pretty good and productive post-Beatle career and some absolute standout albums. And a lot less waste. Well, less product, right? You know, that's the thing we criticized Paul about, that maybe it's not just quality in Paul's case, but just too much quantity. You certainly couldn't accuse George of that. No, George retained more of the, what I like to call the Beatle editing instinct. You know, when the Beatles were together and they're such young kids, they just had amazing self-editing capability. And just choosing the right things all the almost all the time. They, I mean, when did they make a mistake? And it seems as they got away from the four making those decisions, something was lacking, and people were allowed to be more self indulgent. And that's not always with the best results. But George seemed to, um, with very few exceptions, mm. I think it bothered him that the music industry had moved on from a lot of the things he liked both in the production and in the final product. And the world as well, right? I mean, look at the cover of All Things Must Pass 2000, where he's got motorways, as we say in England, the highways and the concrete around him, uh, you know, and how he, he was basically ruining what was happening to the environment. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's interesting, isn't it? Because one would think of George as being someone who was kind of ready for death, you know, ready to transition, as he would see it. And as he said in that interview... He wasn't too worried about departing this world, but he certainly gave it a hell of an effort to stay here. You know, this thing of going to Switzerland and ending up in the States, uh, he, he certainly did everything he could. Well, he had that parental love. I'm sure I don't have to tell you about it. We're both parents. And uh, once you have a kid, you know, you might think you know what the word love means. And then you have a kid and they it just has a whole new definition. And all the daddy wiring comes all that that circuitry comes online, and I'm sure that that was part of it. That he was he wanted to be here to see his uh, young man grow up as much as he could. The last weeks of George's life, he was in Switzerland, and I went to see him, and he was very ill, and he, you know, he could only lay down. Um, and while he was being ill, and I'd come to see him, I was going to. Uh, Boston because my daughter had a brain tumor and I said well you know I've got to go I've got to go to Boston and he goes <sighs> it's the last words I heard him say actually and he said uh, do you want me to come with you <laughs> oh god 
So, you know, that's the incredible side of George. That's really moving. You know, you sort of think of the Beatles as pretty hard-hearted at times. And uh, Ringo, we've seen more than once get emotional on camera. You see it when it's the Threetles in the anthology. He starts to choke up when they're at Friar Park and uh, sitting around. Considering the enormity and the and the complexity of their relationship, the two of them, um, when yeah. when a situation occurred with George and Maureen, that really broke up Ringo's marriage. It also broke up a pretty successful songwriting team that were like having hits. Yeah, that's right. Because I think Photograph was the last co-composition between them. It, it's just interesting, but still the love was there. Ringo's, for, for whatever crusty exterior he might seem to have, seems to be a very forgiving soul. That's kind of how they were, right? I mean, look at George's attitude towards Patty and Eric. Yeah. They ultimately rolled with the punches. Yeah, it's, but that's you can tell the real emotion there. Uh, funny when Paul talks about it. He does get emotional about George, but in a much more subtle way. You'll hear his voice kind of get soft, and he'll say, "Who's my little brother?" And then, then phew, moves yeah. on. You know, no vulnerability. My baby brother. Baby brother. Yeah, my yeah, and and which is crazy because, as you pointed out many times, it's a nine month difference. Yes, it's still <laughs> it's nine. Still months. nine months. It'll always be. I have every reason to believe Ringo in that vivid description. It's interesting that there's another reported sighting of the three of them together in New York. Uh, in November, right before George dies. Right, and I haven't been able to really figure that out. It's said, as you said, that Paul and Ringo flew to New York after George told them he didn't have long to live. And they basically had lunch together, laughed and joked. But, of course, it's the usual sources, you know, unnamed sources. Someone said they knew this was their last supper. It was really emotional. There were some tears, but there was more laughter than anything else. George's doctor, Gil Lederman, also sat in on part of the historic meeting. He said it was a spirited affair, not a somber one. There were lots of laughs and lots of fun. They spent hours reminiscing. For me, it was a unique phenomenon to be there. The whole experience was an incredible one. These were the icons of my life, some of the most important people of the 20th century. There were tears, but George remained very much the man of dignity. At the end, after both Paul and Ringo had left... He was fine and calm. He was a very happy man. This meeting meant so much to him. But, you know, that was supposed to be on November the 12th. Well, let, let me ask you a question. This this doctor, is this doctor feel bad, Mr. Sign this guitar? Yeah, yeah I, right. I'm afraid he has zero credibility for me. Well, he does. But it's a weird thing to put out there, isn't it? Because it could easily be shot down and it pretty much was by Ringo. Well, he's a pretty weird guy. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think he had some pretty... Strange. I mean, was that just another uh, device to make his gu signed guitar and items worth more money? I There's something about the whole thing. Right, because George was actually getting experimental radiotherapy treatment at Staten Island University Hospital. Gilbert Lederman was the oncologist. And apparently, according to you know the Harrison estate, after George died... He repeatedly revealed George's confidential medical information. Yeah, that's amazing. During TV interviews and also forced him to autograph a guitar. That lawsuit ended up being settled out of court. And 
one of the stipulations was that the guitar had to be disposed yeah, of. Yeah, which I think is a good thing, because otherwise it becomes one of these macabre artifacts. A bit like, yeah, John's signed Double Fantasy album. Oh, by album he who must, for... whose name must never be spoken. Yes, um, I exactly like that, as a matter of fact. And also, mm. it's so funny that the doctor, the the emergency room doctor that treated John is, is another guy that just makes my skin crawl. Um I don't know if you've ever seen any any interviews with him, but they're beyond... Only at the time when he announced that, you know, John's dead. It got a lot worse. <laughs> don't... I'll oh, put it really? this way. Don't go looking for them. They're really... They're just graphic and gross and, like, this guy's just nuts. Uh, just... Really? What, he started embellishing? Uh, the grossest one I can remember off the top of my head, and maybe people in the audience are nodding as they hear this, one of the documentaries he goes... He's got this kind of like, hey, I was holding John Lennon's heart in my hand, and it, and right. it was a good heart. And I'm thinking, oh, Jesus. Ugh. You know <laughs> what I'm saying? Just, God, you dress up like him for the next Halloween. Well, either way, apparently in that last meeting, whether Ringo was there or not, certainly with Paul, apparently George was joking and reminiscing about the time he lost his virginity in Hamburg. The other Beatles were respectfully quiet while he was doing his thing, and that at the end, they all started to cheer and applaud. What a bunch of guys. I Nothing know. like that. At a... Gotta love them. Well, I suppose that set him on a certain path, didn't it? He was on a path now when he reminisced about it, and the word was starting to come out, wasn't it, that he was in his final days? Yeah, I was very unsurprised. I guess, though, the finality of it was still shocking. You knew it was coming any day. It's also hard for me to think of, once again, how young he was. He was only 58. When you see him in some of those final films, you know, and, and photographs, he's looking haggard, isn't he? And, of course, we got that unfortunate final photo of him in one of the clinics yeah. with the hair shorn. It's a sort of fuzzy black and white. It actually looks like it's off closed-circuit TV. And it just really sad. Maybe better that way. You see him, if you bought the... Uh, deluxe edition of brainwashed you got that dvd that had the little promo film on it where he's out in his yes. garden and yeah he he looks and in the studio yeah, in the studio he looks okay but the stuff shot out in the garden he really does look tough he does he's wearing a hat and he just looks like you know someone who's really yeah sick. and he looks he looks more like he's in his 70s than than in his 50s yeah so it's very sad yeah it is and also Paul said, you know, that at the end he was in a lot of pain and that he, he was a brave lad. It, that You know, it's just really moving to hear all of that. Yeah, I remember the last time Paul spoke of ever seeing George, he was there with uh, Heather, his wife Heather, uh, at the time. Mm. And I think there's some sort of quote about her witnessing what she did. And, and Paul said, he goes, well, I held his hand. He was still cracking jokes. Uh, but then I, you know, it was time for me to go. Or something to you know to that effect. Funny mention Heather because the report is is that George died at Paul's property on Heather Road in Beverly Hills, and there's there was some kind of dispute about that as to where he actually died. It said, "Oh, he died at Paul's home." Then it he didn't, but that seems to be the accepted version of events. If I remember correctly, George was en route from New York to Hawaii to go back to Hannah or you know his house out there. Mm. Now, whether they decided they had to land the plane because of a medical emergency or not, I don't remember. But the idea was he, he's not going to make it that far. So they 
got him off the plane in L.A., and they probably had to make very quick accommodations. So I tend to believe that it was, as you say, on Heather Road. Heather's a kind of a bad luck name for McCartney. Good afternoon, and welcome to the BBC's News at 1 o'clock. The former Beatle George Harrison has lost his five-year fight with cancer. He died last night at the age of 58 at the home of friends in Los Angeles. His wife and son were at his bedside. In a statement, the family said he left this world as he lived in it, conscious of God, fearless of death, and at peace. Sir Paul McCartney led the tributes this morning, describing him as a baby brother. Our first report is from our arts correspondent, Nick Hyam. Tributes from fans today at Abbey Road, the London recording studio forever associated with George Harrison and the Beatles. I'd known he was sick for a while, but you know, never really thought it would, would happen. It's always tragic, you know, when someone, someone like him passes. His contribution to the band is everything. I mean, he played, he was the guitarist. He is the Beatles. George Harrison helped supply the soundtrack for an entire generation, including the British and Irish Prime Ministers. Sorry. I mean, we grew up with the Beatles. You know, their music uh, and the band, the personalities of the band were the background to our lives. And I think people will be very sad at his death. Among the tributes today, one from Paul McCartney, friend, collaborator, fellow legend. He's uh, such a brave lad. To me, he's just my little baby brother. Uh, we grew up together and uh, I knew him in my old hometown, Liverpool. And um, we just had so many beautiful times together that that's what I'm going to uh, remember him by. The lovely guy who's full of humour, as I say, even when I saw him last time and he was... Uh, obviously very unwell. He was still cracking jokes like he always was and uh, he'd be sorely missed. He's a beautiful man and uh, the world will miss him. George Harrison died in Los Angeles and this morning Americans are waking up to the news. Our correspondent David Willis reports from New York. George Harrison died at the Los Angeles home of one of his oldest friends, Gavin DeBecker. His wife and son were by his side. In a statement, the family said that George Harrison left this world as he lived in it, conscious of God, fearless of death, and at peace. Died at 4.30 Eastern Time, but we didn't... News of his death is lead story on America's morning shows. The Beatles performed their biggest concerts in the United States, and the group and George Harrison have remained hugely popular. That's very sad. Very sad. He's, uh, you know, part of our history, obviously. His smile. Really, he had a beautiful smile. 29th of November 2001, when George did pass, he was cremated at Hollywood Forever Cemetery. Quite a name. And his funeral was held at the Self-Realization Fellowship Lake Shrine in Pacific Palisades. Yeah. And then his ashes were apparently scattered, according to Hindu tradition, in a private ceremony in the Ganges and Yamuna Rivers near Varanasi in India. Yeah, I'm sure that's exactly what George would have wanted. Did you ever hear Olivia's description of the moment George died? There was a profound uh, experience that happened when he left his body. It was visible. Let's just say you wouldn't, you wouldn't need to light the room if you were trying to film it. He just lit the room. I remember reading when John died, an article in Rolling Stone where someone said, we're preparing for death all our lives. You know, it's kids playing 
cops and robbers and getting shot or, you know, cowboys and Indians, whatever. Yeah. We're always kind of rehearsing for death. But certainly in George's case, I think he really was ready for it. Yeah, yeah definitely. Olivia said that. She said there was no, never a person more ready for this. I remember her saying mm. that. But he left us one last album, which... Magnificent. When we were putting this show together, and I remember you talked to me about it, and I'm sitting there going, oh, because I can't really listen to Double Fantasy, for example. Uh, it is so in, in twi- intertwined with that horrible weekend of... Uh, or that week, I should say, because John died on a Monday. That whole week was just a horror. And I, w- I was listening to the album nonstop, um, and I, I, I've never been able to really enjoy it. It's just It just brings me back to the week of John's death and how awful that was. In a sense... Even though it was a year later, after after George had died, when Brainwashed came out, I, I somehow felt it was maybe it was too soon. It just kind of bummed me out. Uh, there was some beautiful mm. moments on it. I, I certainly heard that and and liked a couple of the songs a lot. But just somehow it just brought me back. Oh, he's gone. Now it's been so many years. That's interesting. Yeah. Just- yeah. Because for me, it really worked. Whereas Milk and Honey, you know didn't quite measure up it was stripped down tracks it was unfinished in this case it was finished and it it really resonated with me right from the start finished beautifully i think that uh danny um really has to be you know complimented on on his admirable restraint both he and jeff lynn I remember Danny saying that you know he didn't want to get in the way of the songs because they were mostly in demo form what they were working with. Yeah, because George had actually started work on some of the tracks as early as 1988. Um, Any road he started writing during the shoot for the video for "This Is Love," you know, from Cloud yeah. Nine, and he's, he can't, continued working on various songs, but he had. Sort of business problems, you know, he had this legal dispute with his manager, Dennis O'Brien. He had the work with the Travelling Wilburys, stuff with Ravi Shankar, Beatles Anthology. So he was kind of working around that. Um, in 1999, in an interview, he said that the title of his next album would be Portrait of a Leg End. Yes, yes, I remember that. Remember yes, that I one? Do. Some of the songs he previewed were Valentine, Pisces Fish, and brainwashed. And then, when he was promoting the re-release of All Things Must Pass, he said that the album would be called Your Planet is Doomed, Volume 1. <laughs> volume <laughs> I like it that it's your planet, not our, maybe because he felt that he was going to be departing. I think that, yes, I think that was probably it. It was once he actually survived the knife attack that I think he really focused on getting this album out. He, most likely, again, he saw the writing on the wall he realized that his time may be up and he wanted to get this out. So when it became clear to him that he might not be able to bring it to fruition himself, he gave detailed notes to Danny, which were then shared with Jeff Lynn. And as I say, there is a, without somebody to oversee the project and make sure that not too, you know, too much of you gets into it, I think the admirable restraint is amazing. Jeff Lynn has a particular drum sound, it seems to be dialed back a little bit here. There's really a lot of space for George to express himself, and and there's a smoothness to this that's quite incredible because you consider some of the tracks, something like Devil in the Deep Blue Sea was, what, 1992, and then you get something, yeah. Any Road was obviously around in the 80s. 
So it skips around. And he previewed it also on that VH1 interview with John Fugue. Yeah, virtually it was intact, wasn't it? It was the exact same song. And to make all of that kind of work together, and the sequencing is, is quite fabulous on the album as well. I think they did a fantastic job with Any Road. Yeah. You can hear both Danny and Jeff on there. And it's a fantastic recording. And for me, some of George's greatest lyrics. Give me uh, plenty of that guitar. Traveling on a boat and a plane in a car on a bike with a bus and a train Traveling there, traveling here, everywhere, in every given All along, we pay the price with the spin of a wheel with the roll of the dice Ah yeah, you pay a fare and if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there Traveling through the dirt and the grime From the past to the future Through the space and the time Traveling deep beneath the waves In watery grottos and mountainous caves But ah, Lord, we got to fight With the thoughts in the head With the dark and the light No use to stop and stare If you don't know where you're going Any road will take you there Teeth by the breadth of a hair Traveling where the ball winds blow With the sun on my face In the ice and the snow But ooh it's a game Sometimes you're cool Sometimes you're lame Ah oh, yeah, it's somewhere If you don't know where you're going Any road will take you there The spin of the wheel with the roll of the dice Ah oh, yeah, you pay your fare If you don't know where you're going Any road will take you there I keep traveling around the bend There was no beginning, there is no end It wasn't born and never dies There are no edges, there is no size Ah oh, yeah just don't win, it's so far out, the way out is in Bow to God and call him sir, but if you don't know where you're going Any road will take you there And if you don't know where you're going Any road will take you there
I think his lyrics really are great on this whole album. There's there's very few places. Sometimes he tries to jam too many syllables in um, in a couple of places, but he always did that. Right. Any road, some of these lyrics, you know, I mean, these go way beyond he's a master at going faster. Uh, you know, you have things like, I've been traveling through the dirt and the grime from the past to the future, through the space and the time, traveling deep beneath the waves in watery grottos and mountainous caves. But, oh, Lord, we've got to fight with the thoughts in the head, with the dark and the light. No use to stop and stare. And if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. One of his, one of his better songs ever. It really is. When you think about it, it's, if it hadn't... If it had come out at a different stage of his career, um, I think it would have done a whole lot better than stalling at number 37 on the singles chart. Mm. I love also the verse, I keep traveling around the bend. There was no beginning. There is no end. It wasn't born and never dies. There are no edges. There is no sides. And it flows beautifully with how he chose to play it too, which is I think sometimes that doesn't always happen with his you know, because he had to get the message in there and it has to fit. Um, so this, there's an effortlessness to this and and a couple of other ones, you know, like Stuck yeah. Inside a Cloud later on uh, is is a great yes. example of less is more. Um, and the the lyrics fit the rhythm of the song and he it allows some really nice slide work to go on. Yeah. Now, P2 Vatican Blues, that really is a kind of humorous take on... His Catholic upbringing. First time he ever mentions it outside of interviews. I don't think he ever right. mentioned it in a song previously. No. Well, I don't think it was a r- religious Catholic upbringing. I've never heard that. I think there was more involvement with it, say, than the other Beatles. Mm. I don't think any of them ever went to church for, for anything. But I think George right. went to Mass. Being a recovering Catholic myself, there's only so much non-involvement with the church that you were allowed, especially in those days, and especially because Liverpool was such an Irish city. I mean, the only thing better than Catholic guilt, and I'm the only thing more effective than Catholic guilt is Jewish guilt, coming from a family that's predominantly Jewish at this point in my life. Uh, So the two forces are pretty good. So I'm sure he actually went to Mass as a kid. Uh, How much? Um, But think about it, he was always the most religious of the Beatles from the get-go. The ceiling from below The splendid Michelangelo Fill my heart with delight That Saturday night I ride believing from home Find every step inside St. Peter's dome Claustrophobic and ex-Catholic Saturday night Now how come nobody really noticed Puff of white smoke knocked me out Truth is hiding, lurking, banking Things I do at night It's quite suspicious, to say the least Even mentioned it to my local priest Father, three Hail Marys Each Saturday night Let's hear Connemar Chingas Play it, Con, baby Mm. 
somebody would tell me that it's only a show. And I'll confess, oh, not let's face it, in my concrete tuxedo. It's quite suspicious, to say the least, while mentioning it to my priest. One of all the three Hail Marys, each Saturday night. Some of these lyrics are actually pretty humorous and the way he delivers it as well. Now, how come nobody really noticed? Puff of white smoke knocked me out. The truth is hiding, lurking, banking, things they do at night. It's quite suspicious, to say the least. Even mentioned it to my local priest. One Our Father, three Hail Marys, each Saturday night. Yeah, so he's he is uh, talking a little bit about the church sex scandals that rocked the Catholic Church over the years. Yeah. I like the, you know, the reference to, you know, the puff of white smoke is a papal reference, of course. But I love the reference to One Our Father, Three Hail Marys, the act of contrition. When you went to confession as a kid, that was always the thing. I swore that the priest was sitting behind the screen with like a beer and some chips. Going, oh, what did you do next, kid? You know, type of thing. Uh, but that, w- that would be your act. You, you say, okay, say three uh, Our Father, Lord's Prayers, and, uh, and five Hail Marys. Yeah. That would be how you got your soul back. And I think the ridiculousness of that, you know, George so beautifully handled it, you know, you don't need a passport or a visa to get to Jesus, was probably the only other time I really remember him being, uh, you know, talking about something as a young Catholic, I could, uh, oh, okay, he's, that's a message for people like me. Yeah. So that song really works for me, and so does the next one, Pisces Fish, in which he says, I'm a Pisces fish and the river runs through my soul. Smoke. 
signals from the brewery Like someone in the found the latest pope In a fight of beer that keeps pumping out with fury While the church bell ringers tangled in his rope But there's a temple on an island Think of all the gods and what they feel You can only find them in the deepest silence I gotta get off of this big wheel I'm a Pisces fish and the river runs through my soul I'm a Pisces fish and the river runs through my soul I'll be swimming until I can find those waters Let the one unbounded ocean up, please Let's flow into your parents, sons and daughters it's still an easy thing for us to miss Blades go skimming through the water I hear the coxswain shout as his instructions about With this crew, oh, it could be a total order Have we time to sort all these things out? Sometimes my life it feels like fiction Some of the days it's really quite serene I'm a living proof of life's contradiction One half's going where the other half's just been I'm a Pisces fish and the river runs through I'm a Pisces fish and the river runs through my I like the lyrics. I didn't particularly care for the tune. For some reason, Mm. that one is the weakest song on the album for me. What do you think happened with George's voice, singing voice, from the really like living in the material world onwards? He has that whiny quality to his voice that he never had earlier on. And it doesn't sound like that was done by smoking or anything. Again, it seems like that's just the way he went vocally. I'm not sure quite what he was trying to achieve. His voice to me sounded... Very different after the Dark Horse tour. 
Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> Dark Horse, H-O-A-R-S-E. Yes, yes, and it was a bootleg of that title at the time. Well, I have to say, when I saw him in 92 at the Albert Hall, that final concert, Natural Law Party, I, maybe I would have noticed if his voice was just terrible, but I can't say that in the moment. Just the excitement of hearing him and seeing him and hearing him do these you know, classic numbers, Beatles, post-Beatles, I can't say I was analysing the voice as I would have done if I was sitting down listening to a recording of the show. It was way better in the 91, 92 stuff. He sounded as good as he could sound. And I think he knew right. how to take care of his voice a little bit better. Um, mm. At least in Japan, our, the buzz at the time was that he was uh, trying to quit smoking. Now, he might have been joking about that, but he said that part of the idea of, of touring in Japan was that. And also... Uh, that he he thought that there would be a very sympathetic audience and maybe in case things were a little rough, it, they'd be kinder in their reviews than, say, Rolling Stone or something in the U.S. Yeah. So then we get to Looking for My Life, which we've already mentioned. Wonderful tune. Fantastic. And that's followed by Rising Sun. Well, I think this could have been subtitled I Am the Rabbit. I think it's very 60s. I love the string arrangement. It's an example, as I was saying earlier, of George's unique ability in the Beatles to effortlessly turn back the clock and make it sound like, okay, I'm going to make a Beatle record now. On the street of villains, take him for a ride. You can have the devil as a guide Crippled by the boundaries Programmed into guilt Till your nervous system starts to tilt In the room of mirrors You can see for miles But everything that's there is in disguise Every word you've uttered and every thought you've had is all inside your files, the good and the bad. But in the rising sun, you can't feel your life begin. Universe play inside your DNA. I have been employed Working there till I was near destroyed I was almost a statistic Inside a doctor's case When I heard the messenger from inner space He was sending me a signal That for so long I had 
had ignored But he held on to my biblical call Until a ghost of memory Trapped in my body and mind Came out of hiding to become alive Is there double entendre going on there? Is that a little nod to Danny, you know, the rising sun? You know, I know it's S-U-N here, but there's there's a lot of play of words, a lot of double entendre I read into these lyrics on this entire album. Right. On the avenue of sinners, I have been employed, working there till I was near destroyed. That's such a reference to the 66 tour of the Beatles to me. It's, uh, you know, it, it, it's you don't have to be Fellini to figure it out. I mean, yeah, these lyrics... I was almost a statistic inside a doctor's case when I heard the messenger from inner space. He was sending me a signal that for so long I had ignored, but he held on to my umbilical cord until the ghost of memory trapped in my body-mind came out of hiding to become alive. And in the rising sun, you can hear your life begin, and it's here and there, nowhere and everywhere, though its atmosphere is rare. It's part two of Hear Me, Lord, in some ways, you know, that idea, mm. Hear Me, Lord, when uh, all Beautiful. those years that I ignored you, you know. 
I still see that, like, is he talking to him and his son at the same time? You know, the father and the son become, you know, the child is the father of the man. There's something in there. I really love the song. I mean, stack these lyrical efforts up against some of Paul's. Oh, don't be, let's be nice. (laughs) No, but it's serious, right? I mean, Paul, we know, is capable of great lyrics. So it's that lack of effort. You see, George, to me, put in a hell of a lot more effort on the lyrical side of things. I think part of it you're seeing here is an artist who knows that this is the this is the last dance. This is it. This is the one that's going to come out after I'm dead, and people are going to go over it with a fine-tooth comb as they do all the Beatles stuff. He had a different motivation. I think also that as he proved time and again, he was a deeper thinker. He was one of the deepest thinkers in the Beatles. Oh, I think absolutely. Maybe the deepest, because he was thinking of more than... I mean, Lenin, you might say, was the deepest thinker. But Lenin was very self-indulgent. I mean, through him dealing with his problems, he was sort of setting an example. George always got the feeling like he was trying to be a bit of a messenger and say, look, you got to go figure stuff out for yourself, but here's a roadmap. You know, here's a way to do it, and here's some things you should consider, and I'm going to warn you that things are looking rough on the planet if we don't start taking care of nature, which he he gravitated towards these things naturally. Think of how far ahead, mm. you know, he's he's like the first... He's, you know, the canary in the coal mine about, you know, climate change and spirituality. And uh, I, his stuff resonates. His actions resonate to me these days. You know, when I picked up yoga, it was because the first time I ever heard the word yoga, it was out of his mouth. Right. You know, he's kind of an interesting guy. Now, we're talking about the lyrics, but then we get to an instrumental at the halfway mark, Marwa Blues, which ended up winning the Grammy yes, for- Award for Best Pop Instrumental Performance in 2004. And Paul actually said that that was one of his all-time favorite George It's tracks. very beautiful. Sublime. It For me, it recalls the Ravi Shankar Project album that I referenced earlier, Tana Mana, which yeah. was also recorded at uh, Friar Park, pretty much a lot of the similar personnel. If you ever listen to that, it's it was sort of Ravi's new, new Age album. The New Age was really kind of gaining steam as a subgenre in the late 80s. And Ravi's album, if you've never heard that one, it's worth a listen. That uh, Marwa Blues really reminds me like of that Tanamana album. And it's an absolutely lovely track.
I love the fact that on his final album, there's an instrumental. And as we're going to get to, you know, a cover song also between the devil and the deep blue sea. He wasn't afraid to do that, George. You know, you might remember this Roy Carr and Tony Tyler back in the 70s when they wrote that coffee table fantastic book, The Beatles Illustrated Record. Yeah. They were kind of down on that book, the original print cut, kind of cut off in 1975. So the last George album mm. was Dark Horse and they didn't like it at all. One of the notes they right. wrote about was, well, you know, apparently when people come to Friar Park, George entertains them by playing instrumental songs with beautiful slide work on it. And maybe George should put out an album of that next time. Well, I wonder if those criticisms stuck in his mind to even a tiny point, because to me, Marwa Blues is that opportunity. What would it be like to go to George's house and hear these instrumental slide tapes? Probably sounded a lot like Marwa Blues. Right. Yeah, absolutely true. So then, track seven. Oh. In the Living in the Material World documentary... Danny told us that the seventh track on each album of George's was usually his favorite song. And so Danny made the decision here that it should be stuck inside a cloud and pretty much on the mark. It's really fabulous. Everything comes together in this one. Fantastic slide work, economic use of lyrics that are effective, and the message there. Never slept so little Never smoked so much Lost my concentration I could even lose my touch Talking to myself I lost my will to eat Only thing that matters to me Is to touch your notice feet Talking to myself Inside the 
never been so crazy But I've never felt so sure I wish I had the answer to it Don't even have the cure Just talking to myself So what is the cloud? Is the cloud doubt? Is the cloud heaven? Is the cloud the fog around how you feel with all the medication and chemo? Well, he says I'm stuck inside a cloud, so it doesn't sound like it's where he wants oh, to no, be stuck. talking to myself crying out loud. Well, and, and I still would apply all of those different scenarios. Maybe he wants to be alive and not stuck in heaven. <laughs> you know, maybe. Yeah, but that's what I'm thinking. It sounds like he's stuck inside a gray or black cloud, right? It's a bad time. It's a bad yeah, place. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. A cloud yeah. of illness, a cloud of self-doubt, a cloud of I've run out of time. Well, there's still that thing, isn't there? However much he's ready to transition, however much he's ready for the next stage as he sees it, when it actually comes to it, there's most likely a feeling of I want to stick around. There's still that survival instinct. A very wise person once told me, however much time you think you have on Earth, you've got less. <laughs> and George is, it might be the same thing. Maybe that's what George is talking about, you know? Right. Run so far. Yeah. Again, he really does talk about loneliness in this. You fly out as your smile wears thin. I sigh knowing the mess you're in. And you know that you can't get away. And you know that you can't hide it from yourself. Lonely days blue guitar there's no escape can only run so far yeah running away from your problems running away from yourself maybe a little guilt in there about some of his philandering ways as his uh life was coming to an end and olivia dutifully and wonderfully stuck by him i i, I read a little of that into it this one also mm. to me was kind of the most wilbury-esque sounding
It surprised me upon revisiting the album how wonderfully it balances his art and his commercial sensibilities. There's a couple of things that could have been right. singles on here. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I, you see, for me with this album, I don't think there really is a dud on the whole album. No, not a dud. I, I don't really care for Pisces. That's about it. Everything else is, is terrific. Something else that was reported was that on his deathbed, I think during that final meeting with Paul or possibly Paul and Ringo, he apparently apologised for being grumpy, that he knew he'd been grumpy down the years, and he apologised to his family and friends about that. Well, it's just part of him, you know? Yeah, I mean, it goes all the way back with George. If you read the Michael Brown book, B-R-A-U-N, Brown, from 1964, Love Me Do, The Beatles' Progress, it's a remarkably honest book. John alludes to that in the 1970 Rolling Stone interview. He says that the Hunter Davis book was a whitewash because, you know, they wanted to protect wives and girlfriends oh, and course. so on. But that, that, that if you really want the truth, the unvarnished truth, read Michael Brown's Love Me Do. And it is, it's a great read. Have you read that book? No, you, uh, you've got to, I got to find that one. And you say it's from 64 it was written? 
Yeah, it was. Wow. And in there, you'll see, you know, instances of George being grumpy and a bit of a curmudgeon. So it's just in his character. It's funny because he had a happy family background, unlike some of the others. Yet he always seemed to have some kind of gripe. Well, just just some personalities, you know, I think he had, I think it served him well to have a sort of slightly suspicious attitude of things. It was a survival technique. And he was in a, he was in with some pretty tough guys, I think, who probably intimidated him and certainly controlled his creative output to a certain extent until he broke free of that because he loved and admired them. I think that that was just part of his defense mechanism, part of how he dealt with things. And I'm sure it was a pain in the ass to his family members. You'll notice he didn't apologize to all the fans. He apologized to the people right around him who had to deal with that, I guess. Um, But Danny has said that in several interviews. Charmingly, he'd say like, well, people think dad was a cranky old hippie. And he was, you know, he was kind of a cranky guy. Never get over you. It seems to be about Olivia. You know, girl, you're so much heart and soul. Girl was a moonlit night. You came into my life. And now this feeling has grown. And if you leave me alone, I know I'll never get over you. If you leave me alone, which is interesting. That's why it makes me wonder, is he singing to I would bet the house. You know, sometimes I remember he dedicated Beautiful Girl to her. And it's one of those things that Beautiful Girl actually predated the time that he actually ever met Olivia. So this to me is really the Olivia song. You know, there's no doubt mm. that he's writing it to her. Well, God, I hope so. <laughs> anyway, wouldn't it be awful if, it, you know, George had that funny way of throwing you a curveball. I remember somebody was asking him about something and the inspirations behind something. And of course, we all think it's about Patty. And he says, yeah, I'd, I'd gone out and seen Ray Charles and I wanted to re- write something that Ray could have. <laughs> I'm like, no, don't say that. So I, I wonder if, Hopefully it's not about some woman we never heard about, you know, but uh, I have a feeling it, it, if you look at the words, it's, it's an apology.
Between the Devil and the Deep Blue Sea, as we said earlier, that was from 1992 and included on this album. Wonderful. Wonderful. Interesting choice. Uh, he should have done a whole album like this. Can you imagine? He had such a a great touch with Old Cold Porter and he loved Hoagie. Yeah, true love. And then he did Baltimore Oriole, you know, the old Hoagie Carmichael song. If mm. he had done a whole album in the spirit of this one. You know, I think this one moves along and has the right amount of sort of humor in it. I, I, it's hard to say, you mm. know, humor in music. It, there's something kind of fun and light and uh, funny about this arrangement. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I love the video for it as well with Jules oh, Holland. Oh, beautiful, yeah. Ray Cooper and a, a bunch of I, them there. It, it just would have, that's a great missed opportunity because apparently... You know, when George would break out the ukuleles, th- those were the songs of his very small childhood, I'm sure, that he just loved, you know, and wouldn't it have been interesting? Would have been a really interesting album that uh, should have been made. And again, one, a two, a one, two, three. I don't want you, but I hate to lose you. You got me in between the devil and the deep blue sea I forgive you Cause I can't forget you You got me in between the devil and the deep blue sea I wanna cross you off my list But when you come knocking at my door Fate seems to give my heart a twist And I come running back for more I should hate you But I guess I love you You got me in between The devil and the deep blue sea Thank you. 
cross you off my list But when you come knocking at my door Fate seems to give my heart a twist And I come running back for more I should hate you But I guess I love you You got me in between The devil and the deep blue sea You talk about the sequencing. Next is Rocking Chair in Hawaii. Well, of course, in Rocking Chair, I'm thinking Hoagie Carmichael. That was one of his great songs. Right. And yeah, the Rocking Chair in Hawaii song. I love the song, but it makes me a little sad because in places, his vocal, I, I'm hoping he was trying for an effect as an experiment, but his, yeah. his vocal sounds so strained and weak, you know, like he's just about able to get it out in places. So this one, it's uh, beautifully placed. I agree that it should go right behind Devil in the Deep Blue Sea. But this one is almost like the indication things are going wrong. I'm going down to the river Gonna take me my rocking chair Going down to the river Gonna take me my rocking chair And if the blues don't play Gonna rock all the way from here If you 
Don't get the picture, then you won't have a depth of feel You may be going someplace Someplace you've already been He never makes it back to his rocking chair in Hawaii, which is, I think, part of the sequencing decision here, too, is we're being led up to this uh, rather incredible two songs in a way that end the album. I know it's only credited as as one, but... It's really a 12-bar blues, and he pulls it off. His vocal is weak, I agree. You can hear the struggle in there, and yet somehow he still pulls it off. It works on that blues number for me. It does, Lyrics really dealing with impending doom and loss, you know, and what's that one he's got in there? So if you're still busy hiding what it is you've got, if you're frightened of losing what you like a lot, you may be cruising backwards while thinking that you're not. And that brings us to the final track, which being that Danny chose the seventh track on here, the magical seventh track, one assumes that George, amongst his detailed notes, didn't actually give the sequencing for the album. But uh, it does end, his final statement is the title track, Brainwashed, which for me opens very much in working class hero vein. Brainwashed in our childhood, brainwashed by the school, brainwashed by our teachers, and brainwashed by all their rules, brainwashed by our leaders, by our kings and queens, brainwashed in the open and brainwashed behind the scenes. You know, it's it's wonderful, wonderful, wonderful song. I love the aggression. It sounds like he's yes. so convinced of what he's saying. Oh, yeah. And that leads to some good old hectoring. Childhood, brainwashed by the school, brainwashed by our teachers, and brainwashed by all the rules, brainwashed by our leaders, by our kings and queens, brainwashed in the open and brainwashed behind the scenes. God, 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 our voice cries in the wilderness. God, 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 it was on the longest night. God, 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 an eternity of darkness. by the Nicky, a brainwashed by Dow Jones, brainwashed by the Footsy, Nasdaq and Secure Loans, brainwashed us from Brussels, brainwashing us in Bonn, brainwashing us in Washington, Westminster in London. God, 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 you are the wisdom that we seek, God, 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 the lover that we
does not love, it is love itself. It does not exist, it is existence itself. It does not know, it is knowledge itself. How to know God, page 130. They brainwashed my great uncle, brainwashed my cousin Bob. They even got my grandma when she was working for the mob. Brainwash you while you're sleeping, while in your traffic jam. Brainwash you while you're weeping, while still a baby in your pram. Brainwashed by the military, brainwashed under duress. Brainwashed by the media, you're brainwashed by the press. Brainwashed by computer, brainwashed by mobile phones. Brainwashed by the satellite, brainwashed to the bone. Parvati Patae Hara Hara Mahadev Nama Parvati Patae Hara Hara Nama Parvati Patae Hara Hara Shiva Shiva Shankar Mahadeva Hara 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 Mahadeva Shiva Shiva Shankar Mahadeva Shiva Shiva Shankar Mahadeva Nama Parvati Patae Hara Hare Nama Parvati Patae Hara Hare Shiva Shiva Shankar Mahadeva Shiva Shiva Shankar Mahadeva
the cool thing about this is when you read the lyrics and you see, and there's like a little drawing that he uh, presumably he made, you know, with bull- Bullshit yeah. Avenue. But you see God, 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 and you think, oh, it's a little heavy-handed, George, but it works. When you listen to it, it's, it's the rhythmic quality of the backing vocals doing the God, God, God counterpoint. I think it's great. And you're like, wow. And then you have that passage that's read, How to Know God, page 130. He's packing it all in, in a very small space, everything that he valued and wanted you to think about. And it struck me when I found out that this song actually predated his brain cancer. You know, brainwashed can have a couple of meanings. Is not just mm. the idea that his, it was really the brain cancer that killed him, right? So yes, another double entendre. By the way, I love the verse, George's humor. They brainwashed my great uncle, brainwashed my cousin Bob. They even got my grandma when she was working for Yeah, now, mom. is that just... It's like a limerick. It is, but I'm wondering, should we look into <laughs> this? Is, did he have an aunt with a slightly sketchy background? <laughs> it's just really, it's very cool. It, and then, of course, it segues oh. into something on a much higher plane. It's the beautiful prayer, the, the Nama Pavarti. Pavarti was the wife of Shiva, I believe. There was some debate at the time whether you say Hare or Hara. I think when you say Hara, you're chanting Hara, you're actually singing to Pavarti as opposed right. to Shiva. So um, I, I seem to remember, I could, I could be getting this wrong, but that, that was like a point of scholarly debate. It's a beautiful thing to listen to. Fantastic way to go out. Danny absolutely nailed it. He did. Because apparently he just discovered that tape, didn't he, after George died of the two of them chanting? Yeah, and... There, you know, what did uh, Duchamp say? There's no accident, so it something whispered in his ear. Go look here, and I'm sure that's how he found it. And something that little inner voice said, "I will look in this drawer," because what could be more perfect than to end with that? And it, as I say, in that one little that final track, you get so much of what George wanted you to think about. You know, yes. a little heavy-handed, but. That was him. Yeah, on this album, in addition to the lead vocals, acoustic guitar, electric guitar, George also played some keyboards, some bass guitar, obviously the slide, the dobro, ukulele, banjolele, and contributed backing vocals. So then Jeff Lynne played bass guitar on other tracks, electric and acoustic, some of the piano, percussion, and Danny added acoustic and electric guitars, and also some Wurlitzer electric piano, and they both did backing vocals. And then we had Jim Keltner on the drums, and amongst the other musicians, some of the old faithfuls, Ray Cooper, Jules Holland, Joe Brown, Herbie Flowers, John Lord, Sam Brown. Sam Brown, who was a neighbor, and some of the other gang from other projects throughout his life, all done very, very tastefully. That idea of getting it all to blend and making it sound cohesive must have been very, very difficult. Because you imagine the right. the vocals that George left behind were all recorded different times and uh, different textures in his voice you can hear. It really, really works. I, I severely underestimated this album, coming back to um, revisit it after so many years. And now it's enough time, as it were, so that I don't associate it with his death the way it did. I can I can let it stand amongst uh, all of his other work, and it is a great record. And and even, you know, the artwork is so interesting to me for, for the CD. Mm. The idea of the five dummies. <laughs> five yeah. dummies 
with a TV in their lap. And and of course, the I recognize the brainwashed logo in a sense is sort of George's style of print, you know, block printing. I can see that's his handwriting. So they, they digitized that to use it. And I don't know why they did this and I don't know what the hidden message was in a sense. But if you open the gatefold, you see um, an infrared color picture of his garden. And what's right. interesting is that anyone who's fooled around with photography, I'm sure you certainly did for a long time, Richard, uh, you realize yep. that infrared is, is kind of measuring the heat coming off of something. And mm-hmm. which in this case gives you these funky kind of colors. I, I mean, yeah. what was that about? I wonder. <laughs> you know, it's just such an odd idea. Well, he did like to look at his garden in the dark, so maybe he used infrared lighting to photograph it. Yeah, may, yeah. I guess I guess that would make sense. You know, it's the whole thing is, as I say, uh, in my case, I severely undervalued it. It was a great uh, exercise to revisit it and reappreciate it because there are some of George's greatest work uh, in there. Oh, yeah. That album, for me, is one of his finest albums. I mean, it stands up there with All Things Must Pass, Cloud Nine. Those are my three favorite George albums. Yeah, I can I, I can attest to that. Although I also love 33 and a Third. I liked the George Harrison album a lot, too. Yeah, I like that, too. You see, that's the thing. As we start going through it, it's like, yeah, I like that one, too, and I like that one. I mean, there was a lot of quality in George's post-Beatles work. And it's aged well. If you, it, it has. If you, if you go right. back to even the George Harrison album, for example, and give that another spin, you'll be surprised how how good it sounds. And uh, there's a freshness to it. Right. So Brainwashed was basically his posthumous musical statement, but there was one last one before he died, because on October the 2nd of 2001... He was really weak and was just about capable of performing a couple of vocal takes for a song he'd co-written with Danny, Horse to the Water. But he was too weak to play the lead guitar. So one of Jules Holland's guys, Mark Flanagan, did the solo on that. And it was issued on an album called Small World Big Band. It was a Jules Holland album that was released on November the 19th, which was 10 days before George died. You can hear he's really weak in there. Some people I know weren't crazy on the song. I personally really like it. I think it's a great way to go out. And as with all of George's work, and in this case, it's kudos to Jules Holland and the guys, superb musicianship. Yeah, well, and it is, as you say, the the one that he goes out on because even though Brainwash comes out much later, certainly the last recording he ever did was that particular track. You know what the song's publishing, what it was credited to? Do you remember that? Uh, no. R.I.P. Limited, oh, 2001. Oh, Jesus, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, he had the humor to the end. A dark humor. He did. Dark humor, dark horse. You know, if I had to choose one word to summarize much of George's post-Beatles output in terms of the musicianship, his and the people he surrounded himself with, I think I'd use the word sublime. You listen to a lot of that slide work of his and some of his beautiful guitar solos. It is. It's sublime. Quality comes to mind for me. If I had to give it one word, I'd say the quality of his output, it always seems to be well thought out. It doesn't seem like anything he did was particularly dashed off, you know? 
Right. And and when right. he I when agree. he did do something like that, it was it was awesome, you know, like I don't care anymore, <laughs> you know, or one of those things that he did quickly. But he was always like that, wasn't he? Because you, you think about the BBC tapes where he has to, you know, knock out these solos and a lot of them are pretty dodgy. In the studio he took his time and he got it yeah, right. Yeah, obviously. A different setting, you know, not a live setting. So how did you find out about him dying? I've got to tell you a story here was that when George was interviewed, I think it's the Michael Aspel interview with Ringo in 1988. Oh, that's a great one, yeah. And there he says that he got a call in the middle of the night. I think Olivia took a call and she told him that John had been shot and he was yeah. dead. And he said, and so I basically went back to sleep. And when I woke up, he was still yeah. dead. Yeah. At which we thought, well, that's quite touching, George. <laughs> so now we fast forward to November the 29th, 2001. And I get a call in the morning waking me up from Mark Lewison. And Mark just said to me, George has just died. Now you can go back oh, to sleep. Oh, jeez. Well, <laughs> you know, for George, I think this was a transformation he'd prepared for. He'd probably have appreciated the joke. He was yeah. always the one that said there can be no Beatles reunion as long as John Lennon insists on staying dead or something to that effect. So I think he he was released from the pain. Right. You know, I'm a, a bit of a news freak, so I, I always have my alarm clock is tuned to news radio all the time. So I always wake up to a news story, and I think if I remember, I might have fallen asleep with the radio on, because I seem to remember it was very early that I heard, you know, like five in the morning or something, because it was just some continuous news feed, and they, they knew about it. That's at least how I remember it. Was, it was early. But definitely just, just on the radio feed, no no phone calls. The Lennon thing was my sister called me because she lived in the neighborhood near John. So that was a very disturbing way to find out because it was so uncertain. Um, and, and I thought that he was going to be okay because of the hospital they took him to and all that kind of stuff. But in this case, it was expected, you know, it was going to be any day. Right. It always strikes me that he left a world that had just been shell-shocked by 9-11. He, li he did live to know about that. So he most likely was ready to go. Yeah, it interests me, going back to the Brainwashed album for a second, that he has the instrumental he decided to call, you know, Marwa Blues, which is a reference to Islam. Okay. So I wonder if after the track was recorded that he just thought, you know, he was more conscious of, because he never really mentioned much of Islam that I can really remember, maybe in a couple of interviews, but certainly never in music. So um, I wonder if that was just a little nod towards what was going on in the world as he was leaving. But he was warning us, right? The planet is doomed. Change. First he 
in front of you, but still don't make it Beatles, Naked. Post-production by Richard Buskin. Theme music by Craig Bartok. See some cowboy fall Sometimes it seems to me You have no sympathy at all You hang your head and your heart is filled So much misery But you'd be happy as you could be If you belonged to me And it ain't easy to get to you But there must be some kind of a way if only to connect with you For one moment of each day You say that you're all washed up Got nothing else to give Seems like we never figured out How long you got to live But you could feel like a baby again Sitting on your daddy's knee And you'd be happy as you could be if you belong to me